Hi, good evening, and welcome here to 5 by 15. And tonight we're doing something slightly different. We've got one speaker, but he's terrific, as you're going to see in a few minutes. Um, this is a solo conversation with me, with someone who really knows a lot about money. Money has been such a big topic during this pandemic, whether we have it or we haven't got it. Um, how much or how little did we save? Did we not? How does our government and now America's government too manage to have a magic money tree when they always told us there wasn't any money? Why do we tell our friends all sorts of things about our intimate lives, but we almost never ever reveal our salaries or what we earn or what we really spend? Many of us, however, on the level we might be about every other topic are often quite strange when it comes to the subject of our own money. So I want to introduce you tonight to Morgan Hazel, who is a columnist, an investor, he's a saver, as I think we'll discover. He's the two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors, and he's the winner of the New York Times Sydney Award and loads of other awards. Now he wrote a book which is called the psychology of money. And I can tell you, it's an absolutely riveting read. It isn't really just about money. It's about how we live, what we do with it, and how, how we react to money is intimately connected with how we react to the rest of our lives, including how we grew up. So we're going to talk for about 40 minutes. And then down there below on the bottom of your screen, there's a Q&A box. So please put your questions in. I think Morgan can tackle absolutely anything concerned with money. I'd also say you can probably tackle anything else as well. But I'd like to say very big welcome to Morgan, who's joining us from about 20 minutes south of the centre of Seattle on the West Coast, where apparently everybody wears a mask. And then we're going to start, because that's where we have to start, which is talking about the pandemic, which has in a way ripped back the seams of all sorts of people's finances and exposed a very unequal world. Is that fair to say? I think welcome. that's right. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rosie. Thank you for everyone for, for coming on today. And I think that's that's right. I mean, the biggest issue uh, socially that COVID-19 has done in the last year, outside of the obvious health consequences of the people who have tragically died from it and suffered from it, social economically, it has really just accelerated a lot of the trends that were already in place. And one of the trends that I think it really got accelerated was we've had a very large divergence in wealth inequality over the last 40 years. Probably the biggest economic story in the last 40 years was just the growing gap between the haves and the have nots. And COVID-19 just poured rocket fuel on that trend. So if wealth inequality was growing slowly apart, it just exploded in the last year. And one way to think about this that I think is really astounding is that in the United States, household finances, if you look at their income, their debt, uh, the, the amount of credit card debt that they've paid off, their household financial situation, on average, it is the best it has ever been by far. Right now, today, they're in the best shape they've ever been, the most income, the least debt ever. But that sounds crazy to people. The reason it sounds crazy is because that's just the average level. There's probably 30 to 50% of the economy that's in the worst shape they've ever been. And then you have probably 20 to 30% of the economy that is doing so well right now. They have more money than they ever imagined they'd, that, that they would ever have in their life. So that divergence between the two is really stark. And think about just the stark difference between either your business is essential or it's not. Either mm -hmm. your restaurant is closed or it's open. The differences between how people are doing right now are just black and white. For most of the last 40 years, it was kind of a shade of gray. Technology workers did a little bit better than manufacturing workers, but it was kind of, it was a shade of gray. Now it's just black and white. And it's really changed just how people think about what's happened in the last year. Uh, how I view COVID-19, even if I try to be open-minded and empathetic, and I try to read about the situations of other people, what I have experienced firsthand and the emotions that I have are completely different than a lot of people in the United States and around the world. And it just makes it so that, you know, when one part of the economy does not understand what the other half is going through, it makes it very hard to kind of to understand one another. And I think a lot of these trends are what led to Donald Trump and Brexit and some of the other political point, not to make, you know, not, not to make this political, but mm -hmm. some of the points where you just had a large segment of, of society that just said, this isn't working for me. Uh, a lot of that is just because two sides don't really understand what the other side is going through. And that was, that was different. And if you go back to kind of the, the three decades after World War mm -hmm. II, where economic growth was much more even, people understood each other to a greater degree. 
so that's kind of the big takeaway of the, the big difference. And to me, the biggest story of COVID-19 economically over the last year. Is it fixable? I, I think a lot of these things, once they get momentum, are very difficult to fix because the momentum just keeps them going. The people who, who are doing well are going to keep doing well because they have the money to invest. They're going to invest. They're going to get the gains from that. And people who get stuck in a level of unemployment also have a hard time getting out from that. There's a lot of academic research on what happens in terms of uh, when you have long-term unemployment. So people who lose their job and do not regain employment for six to 12 months, once you've crossed that barrier, once you've been unemployed for six months, very difficult to get back in because your skills start to atrophy, your connections, your network in the workplace starts to diminish. It just gets hard to get back in. So these things are difficult to break. If there is one thing that has the potential to break it and to fix this, it's that in the United States and in the UK and all over the developed world, we are spending so much money to try to fight this. Mm -hmm. Trillions and trillions of dollars, trillions of pounds to try to fight this in, in, in a way that I think is, is we still haven't really wrapped our head around. In the last 10 months in the United States, we have spent adjusted for inflation more money than we spent in 40 years during World War II, which is just wow. mind boggling. We have spent $5 trillion in the last 10 months to fight COVID-19. And we're going to spend several more trillion dollars this year. So the amount of stimulus that is trying to fix the problem that, that, that we just brought up is in many ways unprecedented. Just say nothing what the central banks are doing, this, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, to say they are printing so much money to keep enough liquidity in the system to keep banks lending that in, in many ways, you know, there's no precedent for it. We're in this giant experiment of what this means to have this much government spending. But that is the one thing that is a, 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 a counterbalance to the natural forces of what's happening with COVID. So one of the points you make a lot in the book is how all our attitudes to money are very much formed by the eras we grew up in. And that I would think differently from you or from someone who was 20 or, or whatever. So obviously people who are growing up through the pandemic are going to think very differently. And you said that thing that it's impossible to imagine what someone else is going through. Does that apply as well to people who grew up in different eras when money was different? It's, it's definitely true. I mean, this is a really interesting talk right now because I'm in the United States, you are in the UK, which is very important. One of the things I've always found very interesting is why did Europe, uh, why, why does Europe have a higher propensity for social safety net, universal healthcare and whatnot than the United States? We're, we're similar people. We have similar sized economies. Why is there such a difference? Why are we so reluctant to universal health care when Europe was not? To me, the best explanation, not a full explanation, but the best explanation is simply this. After World War II, much of Europe and the UK was bombed to rubble at the end of World War II, and times were dire. If you go back to 1945, it was brutal across Europe, across Japan. And during that moment, during that time at the end of World War II, there was much more desire in, in Europe to say, look, we need a social safety net to help us out. We need something to lift us back up. We need the power of the government to help us here. And thinking about downside risk is more important than upside growth. The United mm -hmm. States paid a human toll during World War II, but we did not have the physical destruction and the homeland. So it was easier for the United States to say, look, at the end of World, at the end of World War II, let's just swing for the fences. Let's, let's go back to growth. Let's go back to the party because we didn't have to rebuild the physical infrastructure as Europe did. I think that's the best explanation for that. And that just shows that the, the, the experiences that you have, if you lived in London or Berlin during World War II, very different than if you lived in the United States. You think about risk, you think about opportunity in a different way than you did depending on where you live. So I think that's true for COVID as well. Just like we talked about people who have, whose economic situations have done very well over the last year versus those who've been in something that is literally worse than the Great Depression, that is gonna stick with them forever. And I, I think if there is one generation too that is going to be most susceptible to this, it's my generation, kind of the older millennials, because my generation started uh, their careers in 2008, which was the great financial crisis when the economy collapsed. That's when we started our careers. So we, we left college, we left university, and we started in... Uh, with record high unemployment and an abysmal economy. And then we had this tepid recovery and then we have COVID-19. So I think it's, it's my generation that effectively all they have ever known as, as a collective generation, all they've known is collapse and then tepid, tepid recovery and then collapse, that's it. And I think the closest analogy is a generation that suffered through the Great Depression. And then once that was over, immediately got thrust into World War II. That generation, there's a lot of research on this, went through the rest of their life uh, 
thinking about risk in very conservative ways. They didn't want to go into debt. They were very conservative with their investments. They saved a lot of money because all they knew up until that point was chaos. And it mm -hmm. just kind of sets this bug in your head that, hey, every five to 10 years, the world falls apart. That's mm -hmm. what it teaches you. And it's very different than I think uh, my parents' generation that, you know, of course they had their own share of, 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 of uh, trauma and tragedy, but when it's all you've known is trauma and tragedy, it sets you up for, for a, a path in life that makes you think about the world in more conservative ways. That's so interesting. I mean, my father, who was in the Second World War, you know, he, he saved. He thought having an overdraft was essentially stealing from the bank. Was, I mean, he didn't quite say that, but that's what I know he thought about it. So um, one of the, the, the things you say in your book, I mean, you, you talk a lot about the power of saving and the, the kind of person who saves and the kind of person who doesn't save. And um, you yourself are a saver, aren't you? And tell us about what, what it is to be a saver. And, and, and that you have a very interesting story about the difference between a janitor and a banker about the, you know, that I think that expresses both that generational thing and a, a kind of risk mentality as well. Yeah, well, the, the story about the janitor and the banker is this. This is how I open the book. I'll give you the, 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 the truncated version. There's a guy named Richard Reed who uh, worked as a janitor for his entire career. This is in the United States. Was just a very humble guy. Never, he didn't finish school, lived by himself. He was as humble as you can imagine. But when he died, he left several million dollars to charity. And his, all of his friends said, where did this janitor mopping the floors get millions of dollars to leave to charity? And it turned out that he had just saved what tiny amount of money he could from his job as, as a janitor. He invested it in the stock market and he left it alone for like 80 years. That was all he did. And then the banker, this is also a true story in the United States, was a guy who had the exact opposite upbringing. He was born to a very wealthy family. He went to Harvard. He had the best education. He worked on Wall Street. He became a vice chairman of, of Merrill Lynch, one of the largest banks, and went bankrupt right after 2008. So here is someone who have polar opposite backgrounds, polar opposite educations, polar opposite opportunities. But one person does very well, the janitor does very well, and the banker goes bankrupt. And they're both true stories. And what that shows, I think, is that doing well in finance, doing well with money, is not necessarily about what you know. It's not about how smart you are or where you went to school or how sophisticated you are. It's overwhelmingly just about how you behave. It's about your ability to be patient, your ability to keep your ego and your spending in check, your ability to have a long-term mindset, to think about the future. And those things really have nothing to do with your education or where you went to school. Those are just much more personality-driven uh, psychology traits. And so that's, I, I think a lot of people that are very good savers and save a lot of money and accumulate a lot of wealth are not necessarily the people that who you would think. It's not necessarily the person who went to Harvard and works on Wall Street and drives a Ferrari. You know, there are a lot of people like that that are legitimately wealthy, but a lot of people who are wealthy as well are who you would never imagine. Because uh, I think what's important about wealth, and this fools a lot of people, is that uh, wealth is what you don't see. Maybe this is obvious when I state it, but it misses a lot of people that wealth is the money that has not been spent. So wealth is the cars that you did not purchase. It's the house that you did not buy. It's the clothes that you did not buy. It's money that you have saved and invested for the future. And since we don't see wealth, it's very easy to, uh, to mistake who is actually wealthy in the world. So a lot of, you know, I make this point that if you see someone driving a Ferrari, uh, it's easy to say, oh, that person's wealthy. And maybe they are. But the only thing that you actually know about that person is that they have $300,000 less than they did before they bought the Ferrari. That's all you know about them. And so when you realize that wealth is what you don't see, it makes it, uh, you're more careful about finding role models. I, I make this point that uh, physical fitness is visible. If someone is in good shape, you can, you can see it. If someone is in poor shape, you can see that. So it's easy for us to have physical role models. I want to look like this person. I don't want to look like this. You know, this is my inspiration to exercise uh, because you can see it. But since wealth is not visible, it's much harder to have role models because it's easy to say, oh, John has a lot of money. I want to be like him. Joe, the janitor does not have a lot of money. I don't want to be like him, but you have no idea. You, have no, you don't see their bank accounts. You don't see their brokerage accounts. You really have no idea. So, uh, you know, to me, I, I'm a saver, but, I, but we, because, so we don't spend a lot of money. We don't buy a lot of stuff. We, we, we live a very comfortable, very nice, lucky life. But what we save money for, my, my wife and I, is to be able to control our time, 
That's what I want money to do for us. I want to save money and grow wealth over time, not so that I can buy a bigger car or a bigger house, but so that I can wake up every day and just say, I can do whatever I want today. I can hang, I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want for as long as I want because I've saved up a level of money that gives me independence and autonomy in my career and autonomy in terms of where I want to live, how much time I want to take off, when I want to retire. That's what I want to use the wealth for. So it's, it's just a subtle difference on what you view money for. What is the utility of money? Very often, the only answer is to buy stuff. Mm. And to me, I think the much bigger cause that's going to lead to happiness for more people is just using your money to control your time and give you independence and autonomy. Yeah, I think, I mean, I would agree with you, but I mean, money is so, when people, you, you say, you know, you don't need people who bury themselves in debt. You shouldn't study interest rates. You should look at the history of greed and insecurity and optimism. I mean, people want that Ferrari or whatever their equivalent is because they think it's, it tells a story about them. And indeed, our whole society is geared to making you believe you will be better if you buy the clothes, the car, the house, etc. So how do you how do you get on top of that? I mean, what what is the answer to that? Well, for, I mean, the, the, the first point that I make is I, I like Ferraris as much as anyone else. I think they're beautiful. I think they're gorgeous. I love looking at them, etc. This is not a plea for people to, you know, live like a monk in a cave. I like nice stuff as much as anyone. But I think people are very, uh, uh, I, I think it's very common for people to overestimate social benefit that you will get from nice stuff nice cars, nice jewelry, nice homes. Because here's the quirk that I think is easy to overlook is that if you see someone driving a Ferrari, very rarely do you look at the driver and say, wow, he must be cool. What very often happens is you imagine yourself as a driver and you imagine people thinking that you would be cool. You just transplant yourself into the driver's seat. You bypass whoever's actually driving the car and you imagine yourself driving it. That's the irony of this is that people who are driving the car think that people are looking at them, but the people who are actually looking are just imagining themselves in the car. So people get much less social recognition and social benefit than they think. Not, not zero, not zero social benefit. There is a, a, a very important signaling uh, fact to society where you know, wearing nice clothes says something about yourself, looking presentable and keeping up with, you know, is, is an important thing, but people are easy, it's easy to overestimate how much social benefit you'll get from nice stuff. Um, so that, that is something that's easy to overlook, but what is also equally e easy to overlook, I think again, is how much happiness and satisfaction and admiration people get from being able to control their time and being independent, being able mm. to have a career that they want to have, hang, living where they want to live, retiring when they want to. That is something that's actually going to move the needle in your life relative to buying nice stuff. So one of the things you say in order to get to that point is that you have to understand having enough and that that is something that none of us really understand because our whole society is geared to never having enough. More and more and more. Yeah. It's this idea that I think the most important financial skill for ever, for anyone from professionals on down is getting the goalpost to stop moving. You know, it's so common for people to say, once I have X dollars, everything will be great. And then if you, you have, once you have X number of dollars, you move the goalpost and say, okay, now I need 200. Now I need, four. you just keep it on going and you're just on this for the rest of your life. So look, I want more money as much as anyone else again, but it's important to know when is enough. Because if you don't know when enough is, a lot of times if you're talking about investments, you're gonna keep taking more risk until you eventually realize that you took way too much. You bit off more than you can chew. And your desire to have more, more gains, you know, faster growth in your stock portfolio ends up backfiring on you. It's very important to say, no, look, this is, this is enough. I, I'm taking enough risk. I'm saving enough money. I'm working hard enough. To, because if you don't know where that boundary is, you're never going to find it. You're always just going to be chasing something until the day that you die. And a lot of people do end up in this situation. So it, it's, it's really important just, and this is much more philosophical than it is financial or even psychological, but it's just important to realize like, what do you want out of life and what can you appreciate that you have versus always striving for more and having just this open-ended goal of wanting more and more and more. What was the, you have a good story about Joseph Heller. Yeah, there's a story from, from that, that Joseph Heller tells of uh, uh, J Joseph Heller at, was, was with a friend at a hedge fund manager's home. They're at a party. And the friend goes to Joseph Heller and he says, you know, our host, this hedge fund manager, made more money in one year than you, Joseph Heller, made from all of your royalties on Catch-22, the novel. 
And Joseph Heller says that may be true, but I have something he will never have. And that is enough. And I thought it's just such a wonderful story, uh, particularly because the manager was a hedge fund manager and so many people in finance do not have any sense of enough. So even if you are looking at someone who has so much more than you do, if you have enough, you might feel wealthier than someone else. There are so many wealthy people in the world at different levels that uh, if you are always looking up to whoever is, is ahead of you as your next goal, you're never going to win that race. If yeah. someone makes $50,000, they look up to someone who makes 100. Someone who makes $100,000 looks up to someone who makes a million. The person who makes a million looks up to the person who makes 10. And it never ends. And so you always have to be willing to say, look, I'm ambitious and I want to strive for more, but I, I, I have enough. I'm really happy with what I have now. It's such an important financial skill. So you, it's always very strange, but true and true here and true in America, that it is the poorest who buy the lottery tickets and that it does. Um, uh, can you talk a bit about that? Because it's such a weird phenomenon that, I mean, yeah, so, so in the United States, lottery is a massive industry. We spend more on lottery tickets than uh, video games, movies, concerts combined. And, and, and sporting like events combined. $400 a year or more. And, and the, the people who buy the most lottery tickets, who spend on average of $400 a year, are, is the lowest decile of income groups. The people with the least amount of income, the people who are struggling to feed themselves literally, are the people who spend the most on lottery tickets. Now that is, is a well-known fact in the United States and it's often criticized as how ridiculous this is, how crazy, how stupid these people are that they can barely feed themselves and they're buying scratch-off tickets. It makes no sense. And the point that I wanted to make in the book is that it actually might make a little bit of sense. Mm. Uh, it, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's rational, but here's the thing. If you are one of those people in the lowest decile of income groups, one of those people who is struggling to feed yourself and raise your family, then you might feel like you are stuck in that group. You might not feel that you have the career opportunities for advancement and getting a pay raise that other people, like most people watching this, might feel that they have. And therefore, if you feel like you are stuck in a lower income group, then a lottery ticket might feel like your only literal ticket out of where you are. Your only chance of getting out of the situation that you are in is buying this lottery ticket. You don't have the chance to, you, you might feel like you don't have the chance to work hard, get promoted at work, to get a raise, to invest in the stock market, to build wealth for retirement. If you view a lottery ticket as the only chance that you have, then suddenly it's, it's the only time in your life that you could hold something that says, I have a chance. This is giving yeah. me hope that I can get out of here. So people like, like, like the two of us might look at that and say, it's crazy. But I think if you put yourself in their shoes, it makes a little bit more sense. And I think this is important. The point I wanted to make about this in the book is that people make all kinds of crazy decisions with money. They do crazy things. They do stupid things with money, but no one is actually crazy in the moment. Every financial decision that everyone makes, the decisions that I make and the decisions of the people buying lottery tickets, it checks the boxes in your head that you need to check to say, this is the right thing for me to do right now. And to me, that's just highlighting how emotional and psychological money is. It's not something that you can solve on a spreadsheet with math and formulas. It's much more just emotional and has to do with the individual context of your situation, the, the, the psychology of your in-the-moment circumstances that leads us to these decisions. There's things that I do with my money too that people would say, Morgan, rationally, that's a dumb thing to do. You shouldn't be doing that. And my answer would be, look, I know it's not rational, but it feels good to me. This is what I'm doing. This, it checks the boxes in the head of, in my head of what I want to do. And that's why I do it. And I think it's okay for people to realize that equally smart people can and do disagree about the decisions that we make with our money, because money is not like math where two plus two equals four for me and you and everyone else. Everyone has a different background, a different life, different goals. They view the world through a different lens. And therefore we make different decisions about what to do with the money. And that's okay. And money's very personal, isn't it? I mean, there's some essays out by Eula Bliss, which have just been published in the UK, and her talking about setting out what she earns, how much money she gets from a little apartment that she rents, how much she pays a cleaner. I mean, masses and masses of detail. And, you know, she writes about this as saying, this was like more or less taking off your clothes and having sex in the middle of Hyde Park or something, and that people were more shocked by her honesty about her money and more just interested in it. I mean, when I read it, I thought, well, that, that's kind of true. People never say, you know, you, you might say what your house costs, but you won't say all those little details. Is that because we're 
embarrassed, ashamed? I mean, what's at the heart of that weird intimacy we have with it? It's probably two things. And neither of these things I think are necessarily good, but I think they're true. You know, which is that one is that we often view our income as our self-worth in the world. And again, I, I, don't, I, I don't think that's a good thing, but I think it's just a real, it's, it's a true thing that people view it's like a scorecard and the higher your salary is, the more worth you're providing to the world. Now, it would be ridiculous for anyone to say that a hedge fund manager is providing more worth to the world than a kindergarten teacher. Like that's, that's, that's mm. an absurd thing, but the hedge fund manager is making infinitely times more money than the kindergarten teacher. So I think it's, 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 it's almost objectively wrong that income and worth are correlated, but it's how we view it. And therefore people are in many ways, I, I think many people would be embarrassed on either end. They're embarrassed at how little they make or embarrassed at how much they make. Uh, and one of those two ends. The other thing that's important is that uh, people would be shocked at how much inequality there is. That there are probably people who work at your company who sit in the desk next to you that do the same job as you, who, who earn twice as much money than you. That exists everywhere. And therefore if people were to actually see the numbers, they would realize the inequities and sometimes injustices in the world that some people, uh, you know, because they're better at negotiating because they ask for a raise or just because of the biases of their bosses who's making these raises uh, leads to very different outcomes for the same quality of work and the same effort of work that's put in. So I think those are the, the, the two things. It's, it's, our view of, it's our view of ourself and just the discrepancies that exist in the economy that leads to money being a very taboo subject. So in a way, the people who benefit from the taboo are the people at the top, isn't it? That's right, because those are the people who can make money that relative to their peers doesn't seem justified at all, but they're better yeah. at negotiating, they're better at their, they have more leverage for whatever the reason. The reasons are very complicated socially, but if they're better at it, they can earn much more money and they become embarrassed. We're not necessarily embarrassed, but they're afraid that if that gets out, that maybe their golden goose will be taken away from them. If you, if you earn a crazy high salary relative to what you're putting in, and then there's a bunch of protests about that when your coworkers find out, you might have that pulled, pulled away from you. So it's like, mm -hmm. keep that secret to yourself if it's benefiting you. So you're very interesting in the things you say in the book that actually shift the economy and that how we look back at history. I mean, the pandemic is obviously going to be one of them, but we haven't got out the other side. But you talk about things like obviously World War II, the 2008 crash, and you also talk about 9-11 in a really interesting way. I mean, these are things that are like well, black swan events that they come along and you can't predict. And in fact, they do things that are very kind of quite um, counterintuitive. Yes, so I, I write in the book how September the 11th led to the student loan crisis in the United States. Yeah. Now, no one would tie those two things together, how 19 hijackers led to student loan debt. Uh, but actually, the explanation is, is pretty straightforward. It goes like this. After September 11th, the United States, the Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, cut interest rates to help fight the recession that was caused by 9-11. Those low interest rates fueled a housing bubble. The housing bubble burst in 2007, as we all know. Uh, that led to a very poor jobs market in 2008. And the jobs market, since the jobs were so poor, led more people to go to school because they said, I can't get a job anywhere. I might as well, to make use of my time, I might as well go to school. So we know that the poor jobs market that was caused by the housing bubble, that was caused by cutting interest rates, that was caused by 9-11, led to student debt. Uh, it's not intuitive again to tie those things together, but that's how complex the economy is. And a big point that's important here is that's why forecasting the economy is so difficult. No one on September the no one on September the 11th said, "Oh, this is going to cause a student loan bubble." No one mentioned that, but it's what happened. And this is why it's so difficult for anyone, even the smartest people, to have any idea what's going to happen, what the economy is going to look like one, five, 10 years from now, because these big events, these kind of grandfather events like September the 11th or World War II have these knock-on consequences that are so counterintuitive that no one would see them coming in, uh, until someone like me has hindsight and can put it all together. Yeah, you, you quote Daniel Kahneman um, saying that hindsight gives us the illusion that the world is understandable and that that produces masses of mistakes. I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly true that people do look back and say, well, that, that happened in 2008, so this can happen again. But no one could have predicted either 9-11 or this pandemic. So right. what can we know in, in that sense, if you're saying that kind of historical looks at finance are not really helpful? To me, I think 
the 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 broader you can get and the the higher the elevation your takeaways are so if you're talking like a 30,000 foot view of the world and you're taking away the broadest lessons from history you're looking back at history and looking at how people respond to greed and fear and their propensity to overshoot their propensity to be short-term thinkers those are important lessons from history the big broad behavioral lessons once our lessons are very specific hyper specific about after World War II, this happened. After September 11th, this happened. The more specific our takeaways, the less applicable they are to the future. But if you could look back at just how people think about risk and how, how emotional people are, people's propensity to get into war, the justifications that they use to get into war, those kind of things. I think those are the takeaways that we can use from history, uh, that we can pull away from history, that will give us a good insight into what the future is likely going to be. There's this great quote from Voltaire that I love who says, History never repeats itself, but man always does. I think that's, that's the big lesson from history is that the specific events never repeat. There's mm -hmm. never going to be a World War II that was just like last World War II. There will be more wars, but it'll be very different. But man always repeats himself. How, he thinks, how people think about uh, risk and greed and whatnot, that's, those are timeless things that were as true today as they were a thousand years ago and will be as true a thousand years from now. This is actually a book that I'm working on right now called the, the, the Big Lessons from History that's looking at just the big takeaways that we can have that we can be very confident will be part of our future relative to the specific events about what's going to change in the future. So you, you write a lot throughout the book about, about risk and about luck as well. And that, I mean, I was really interested when you talked about the numbers of investors or really good investors, you talk about Warren Buffett and people like that, that in fact, enormous amount of what they do is a complete failure. But of course, we never, we never hear that. We only hear about the two or three things they managed to back. You know, it's true that for, for any investor, whether you're talking about an individual investor saving for retirement or a professional like Warren Buffett, that the majority of your lifetime success will come from a tiny portion of the investments that you make. If you were to make 100 investments, you'll, you will probably earn most of your returns on five of them, and you'll probably lose money on half of them. That's normal. That's just how capitalism works. And it's very easy, again, like if, you, if we were trying to idolize Warren Buffett and look at his, at his career, to look at his great investments, Geico and Coca-Cola and American Express, without realizing how many investments he has made that have not done that well. Mm. No, not to get too technical about this, but if you look at Warren Buffett's whole career, he has made about 500 investments over the course of his career. If you remove five of them, five of the 500, his career track record is average. So that's like all of it. And his, Warren Buffett's uh, uh, teacher, a guy named Benjamin Graham, was one of the most famous investors of all time. If you remove one of his investments from his career track record, it's below average. So this is always how it works. This is true for companies as well. You take a company like Apple that has experimented with uh, hundreds or dozens of, of, of products over time. But the one product that really moved the needle was the iPhone. And they've made dozens of products, but it's one that was just a knockoff. That was just an out-of-the-park success. Amazon is the same. Amazon has tried to do dozens and dozens of different businesses, but what really worked was AWS and Prime. That's, that's what made Amazon what it is. So it's always the case that it, uh, just a couple of things move the needle in a way that gives us a really warped sense of risk because once, if, we are, if we are investors and we make 100 investments and half of them lose money, it's easy to kick yourself and say, I don't know what I'm doing. This is wrong. This can't be right. Even if that is a normal path, that's the normal dynamic of growth over time. So uh, just wrapping your head around the fact that tails, kind of the, 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 the tail distribution of outcomes is all that matters in the world. This is really what moves the needle. Makes you more uh, comfortable losing money once in a while or some of your business ideas that don't work out. It's okay. That's, that's a normal path of growth. And it makes you much more cognizant that, you know, one or two good ideas is really all you need to do very well over time, whether that's in investing or your career or anything like that. If we come back to the janitor um, and you said from the age of, I don't know, 20 or whatever, you put a dollar a day aside, a pound a day. I mean, you, you talk, you have some, you have a line somewhere where you say a big failure is money is when you're, you're reliant on the paycheck for your short-term expenses, which struck me as slightly ruthless to a lot of people who are reliant on the paycheck. And I, I always remember when they did a survey in America saying that 
something like 40% of people could not pay a $400 bill if it came in tomorrow without having to borrow some money. And then I think people in the UK were so shocked that we did a similar survey and got exactly the same result. And you yes. realize how you realize how close to the edge a lot of lives are. But if you are reliant on the paycheck, what do you do in order to get some well, kind of cushion? Well, I think it's it's not necessarily it's not it's not it's not failure by any means, but it's a level of reliance and a lack of independence that I think is can lead to a lot of angst for people. So yeah. I think, look, and this is, it's very different if we're talking about the lower strata of income that really, no matter how hard you're trying, the ability to save a meaningful amount of money is going to be very difficult. I can, I can empathize with that and have a lot of respect for that. But for a lot of people watching this right now, a lot of their ability to save relies on lowering their ego. It's just a, it's just a matter of saying, look, this is my income, regardless of what it is. And a lot of what I'm spending on is to social signal to the world. Say, look, I have a, I have a, a, a bigger house than than I than than I might need, a nicer car than I might need, and your ability to save is going to be heavily reliant on not necessarily earning more income, but managing your lifestyle, managing your expenses. Wealth is a two-part equation. You have your income and your expenses. And in the industry, in the finance industry, we spend almost all of our attention on the income side. How do we earn more money? That's mm -hmm. how do we earn more money in our investments? And the expense side, I think, is just as important. It might be more important because you can control it more than your ability to, you know, you have no influence over what the stock market's going to do this year, but you have a lot of control by and large relatively to what your expenses are going to be. So I think once you realize that, then your ability to save money just might become a little bit more in your control and more realistic than you think it is. If you realize that uh, your wealth is the gap between your ego and your income is how I put it, is how I put it in the book. Yeah, so it's, it, it's not black and white because people are in very different situations. Uh, but I, I think for a lot of people, that's the case. So have you bought any Bitcoins? I, I, I haven't personally, but I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not anti-Bitcoin or pro-Bitcoin at all. I, I'm, I'm more just fascinated in it. And uh, to me, uh, Bitcoin has not, and I don't know if it ever will, prove its actual financial utility to the world in terms of being a form of payment that we use versus the dollar or the pound. It hasn't really proven that yet to any degree, but it has proven itself. Uh, with 100% certainty to be a viable unit of speculation. And that is an important part in the world for people to speculate on something. That's, and it's, it's not going away. If, if Bitcoin was a temporary fad, it would have died years ago. The fact that it is still around and worth upwards of a trillion dollars now mm -hmm. uh, means it's not going away anytime soon. So what I would, what I would expect from that and uh, some, some, some people who I really respect is, 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 is who have stolen this from is that Bitcoin will will be around forever and it's going to have absolutely epic surges and epic busts. You might see times where it rises a hundred fold and then falls 80 or 90%. I think that's what we would expect out of an asset that is established as a unit of speculation, but does not necessarily have beneficial utility in the world that we, that we would see from it. Oh God, that doesn't really help me. I keep looking at Bitcoin and I keep thinking, should have bought this years ago, you know, you should have seen this this one coming a virtual currency and this we, we, now, we, we all think that we all think that <laughs> um, there's a story as some people may have seen it last week in the new york times that someone um bought seven thousand bitcoin 10 years ago when it cost nothing and lost their password to their their drive that holds the the crypto key for it and they have two more password attempts that they can guess their password before this, this drive just encrypts forever and it's unaccessible. So that Bitcoin is worth $250 million and he has two more <laughs> password guesses to get it or else it's lost forever. So there's, there's actually, I, I, we, for, from that article, it says that 20% of all Bitcoin that have been mined uh, have been lost forever by people who lost their passwords, lost their keys and they're unrecoverable. So there's, there's some elements of it that are very interesting that kind of leads to more demand because supply has been removed from the equation, which, which pushes the price up. Which is the price is up. Oh God, you really feel for that guy, actually. That must be awful to wake up every morning thinking that you've forgotten that thing. So we've got lots of questions coming in. I'm going to come to them in a minute, but I just want to ask you one question. It's rather a large question, but it's to do with, you know, the, the whole, the whole thing of sort of money that's not touching the ground anymore. Um, the kind of global surge of money, which one writer described and said that if money, he referred to it as Moneyland. This was an English journalist called Oliver Bullough. And he said, if Moneyland was a country, it would go America, China, Moneyland. It, there's 12% of 
the world's money that's whizzing around from the pockets of, so to speak, hedge funds and capitalist companies rather than fixing potholes. Does that, do we feel it? Do you see it um, literally down to the potholes that this, you know, it, it must be hugely widening inequalities? I think that's, I think that's largely true. It's interesting to talk about it today because we're doing trillions of dollars of stimulus that are going to things like potholes and unemployment checks and whatnot. So there is quite a bit that is working its way into the parts of the economy that were previously shunned and neglected from capital. But it is true that there is a tremendous amount of capital in the world that is kind of just passed back and forth between very wealthy people when it could go to use somewhere else. I know this gets very political. It's just by its nature a, a very political thing. But I, I, I do think that we have reached a breaking point, so to speak, of pushing for that. I mean, we're seeing that in the United States with President Biden now, who is in his first week, just in the last week, is pushing for uh, to virtually double the minimum wage, a $2 trillion stimulus package. There's much more movement in there in ways that even with Barack Obama eight years ago would have been off, there just would have been a step too far. Things that for Obama would have been a step too far, oh, Biden is, now you have Biden saying, no, let's, let's go do it. So I do think we've, we, we, we've shifted that needle somewhat in the last couple of years. But, um, you know, th there is a lot that, uh, there's a tremendous amount of financial speculation that takes place on Wall Street and in London that doesn't benefit society at all. It takes place, mm. it, it's just passing pieces of paper between very wealthy people. And, uh, you know, without a lot of social utility, I do, look, I, I, I'm pro finance, I'm pro banking, I'm pro, you know, I'm pro access to capital, but trading back and trading derivatives back and forth is not, is not deepening the capital pool in a way that's going to actually benefit society and help build businesses and help build things. So there's, there's a lot of speculation in there and that's not, you know, it's, it's not necessarily evil in the world. It's just capital that could go to better use in the world. So I'm going to start taking some of these questions. Thank you for all of that. That was actually great. So there's lots of questions here. Um, uh, someone, an anonymous person actually, um, has said, what do you think of Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, et cetera, and the wealth they have amassed? I hope that what you're really asking is, does it seem seem? I suppose that's what I'd ask. It's, it's hard to wrap your head around. So Elon Musk today is worth uh, $200 billion, $200 billion, one-fifth of a trillion. And Jeff Bezos is right behind him, about $190 billion. So these are massive amounts of money. They're equal adjusted for inflation to roughly what Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller and Cornelius Vanderbilt were worth. Pretty much the same amounts of money. I, I think Cornelius Vanderbilt adjusted for inflation was worth about $250 billion. So it's very close to what Elon Musk is today. Musk is an interesting situation because Tesla, the company, has not created nearly, not even in the same universe, as much utility for the world as Amazon. Just, I, I think that's just an objective fact. I, I, I love Tesla. I think it's a great company. But Amazon has benefited virtually everyone in the United States and millions of people around the world. And Tesla is still a very niche company. So, I, you know, when I look at that... Uh, I mean, here's the thing about that kind of wealth. Even if you were to say good for them. They, they earned it and whatnot, and it's their money. They can do whatever you want, even if you believe that. Uh, and, 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 and that's a fine position to hold. But you're still going to have half of society looks at it and says, BS. That's, I'm sitting here suffering, and you're worth a fifth of a trillion dollars. I'm not going to put up with that. So just historically, we know that whenever you have those kind of gaps, that's when you have protest at best and revolution at worst. That's the truth. That's the truth behind it. So I, I think what it's likely to lead to, and we're already moving towards this, is once you have that kind of wealth, mm. it makes it much more politically palatable to have a much higher tax rate at the higher levels. We saw this after yeah. the 1920s, the kind of the, the last gilded age in the Western world led to very high tax rates after that. And the high tax rates were largely to pay for World War II. And now we're going to have to figure out how to pay for COVID-19 around the world. And so once COVID is over and we look back and say, hey, we just spent $10 trillion fighting this, how can we try to recoup some of that revenue? If you start looking around and saying, where are you going to find this revenue? It's easy who to point to. Yeah. It's, it's, that, it's that guy who has a fifth of a trillion dollars. So I think that's a likely outcome from this. And is that a bad outcome? I, I, I would be hard pressed to say that if our tax rates in the United States went from 35% to 39%, that, that the next Jeff Bezos, the, ne the next Elon Musk would be less incentivized to build their businesses. I think that's kind of a stretch too far. It's an interesting thing where very often 
It seems like the gap between red, red blooded capitalism and invoking Joseph Stalin is like two percentage points of tax rates. It's like people view us as very black and white. Whereas I think, I feel like if, if our tax rates went back to where they were in the 1990s, that probably mm-hmm. would not be that detrimental to growth in the United States and whatnot. And whether you think that's good or bad, I think at this point, it's almost inevitable. Good. Um, so here's a good question from Tina Cheesley. Having been a risk taker and losing a huge amount of money, and taking 10 years to work my way back. My children experience this throughout, but I don't want it to have a negative effect on them. I want to show them how to save and not make my mistakes. So how would you advise I educate them? What What should they start to save? They're 17 and 22. Thank you for the question. I mean, the, the overarching point that I would make is that what you get paid for in investing is patience and endurance. That is, that's what you're being rewarded for. The, if you are patient in terms of you, you can invest for the next 10, 20, 30 years and you have endurance, which means that you can put up with uh, bear markets and recessions and the market going down 30%. If you could do those thing, two, two things, patience and endurance, you'll do great over time. So if you are saving, uh, whether it's just saving cash or if you wanna get into a diverse low cost index fund in the stock market, and if you can be patient and have endurance, you'll do great. That's what I, That's overwhelmingly what I would focus on. That's interesting. So there's a question here from Shubhya Chalwa saying, it strikes me that you're talking on the whole about the Western world, which I think is true. Do you think money works differently on the psychologies of say India or China? I think it's I think it's really true. I've spent a fair amount of time in India. I have, I have not in China, but I would say if there was a Venn diagram between how Americans think about money and how Indians think about money, there's more overlap than I thought. It's not 100% overlap, but it's more than I thought. Um, but there are very, the, the investing culture in India is very different from the United States. I would say, I, I don't want to use the word more speculative, but it's more risk-taking than it is in the United States. What's interesting is I, I used to work for a, a, a company called The Motley Fool, which is a, a individual investing company. And Motley Fool in the United States was very successful. Motley Fool Germany, where they tried to open, was not successful at all. It's very difficult to get Germans interested in the stock market. And what's interesting about that is that the German stock market has actually outperformed the U.S. stock market over the last 50 years. So they've done better, but they're not interested in it at all just because the culture is very different. So forget about... India and China, even if you look at Germany, which you might think of as an economic peer, the cultures are totally different. Um, so it's it's very country by country specific. And I, my own bias is through the lens of someone who grew up in and lives in the United States. And I, I wanna be clear about that bias. That's that's the world that I view, but I know it's very different around the world. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, um, here, you, uh, another question here. As you've addressed, we're experiencing the widening gap between the rich and the poor. How do we avoid the pandemic leading to a vulture economy whereby big companies buy up the smaller, less resilient ones? I mean, in fact, we're already seeing that here in the UK because lots of our high street chains are going belly up due to COVID and bad management, and they're being gobbled up. How do we create investment or use liquidity in a way that could guard against this? So, you know, like I work in food politics and, you know, you've got like five companies owning all the wheats in the world and it's just a process of absorption. And you can see that right now it's, it's a time for the certain kind of person to make a killing. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's a great question because not to be too uh, fatalistic about this, but I, I'm not sure that we're going to do anything about it. I think the very likely outcome as we look back at this is going to be that big companies got bigger and more entrenched and small companies became a, a much less thing than, than they used to be. I think that's a very likely outcome. And I wish I had an easy solution to it, but I don't know if I do. A lot of the reason that the stock market surged last year when the economy was in tatters is because the big companies that make up the stock market were doing great. Even if you go back to last April when things were really bad, Amazon, Google, Microsoft were doing phenomenal. And your local dry cleaner, your local deli was closed. Their, business, their revenue is down 100%. So I think that's, that's, that's almost in, you know, we're, we're doing a lot in terms of um, government stimulus to keep small businesses alive, but staying alive and pre- preventing them from going bankrupt is very different. Uh, from having you know a large company eat your market share, so even if the small company stays alive, they're in a much lower position, mm-hmm. uh, more fragile position than they were before this. So I wish I had a solution to say, oh, if we just did this, we would get out of that. But I'm not sure we do, and I think it's almost inevitable at this point. It's, so it's, it's more than inevitable; it's already happened. 
Yeah, there's a there's a question here from Elizabeth Mercer, which is sort of along that line, talking about the UK, but I'm sure it's also true in the US. Many people have no savings and can't afford to put money aside in order to finance basic household essentials or pay for emergencies. Uh, for example, a new boiler where you'll end up having to go out and borrow money and go to debt. So any conversation about choice can be insulting. But many in low paid work, the only thing that will change their lot is an increase in the minimum living wage alongside some kind of universal benefits. Or indeed, I mean, I would add to that, what's your view on the ideas of universal income, for instance? I think what's what's interesting, I, I honestly don't have many formed opinions about this is this is firmly how I feel about universal income. But in the United States, what's interesting is that we what we did last year is it, it used to be in the US that if you lost your job, unemployment benefits were fairly meager. They were enough, they're kind of enough to get to get by at the most basic level. But last year we more or less tripled unemployment benefits. And it made it to the point where if you lost your job in the in the United States last year. Uh, if you made less than $50,000, you were earning more money on unemployment than you did from your job. You were from unemployment benefits, you're earning $50,000. And of course, people love that. And it was it actually had bipartisan support from Republicans and Democrats. That is something that I could see in the United States as becoming the new norm. Uh, we, we've done that with, with President Biden just in the last week of saying, like, look, if you lose your unemployment, it's, if you lose your job and go on to unemployment, we're not just going to give you enough money to buy a loaf of bread and barely stay alive. We're going to give you enough to hopefully live a, a somewhat dignified life. I think that is going to be much more common than having universal income in the United States. It's just having a much deeper and more robust social safety net than we otherwise would. I, I do. There are proposals for universal basic income in the United States. I don't think even among Democrats, to say nothing among Republicans, even among Democrats, it doesn't have enough support yet. But it's being talked about more seriously than it would mm -hmm. even two years ago, to say nothing of 10 years ago. If you brought it up 10 years ago, you would have been laughed out of the room. Now you can bring it up and people will listen to it. So we're moving in that direction. But over the next five or 10 years, I would put much more weight on massively enhanced unemployment benefits versus uh, a, a universal basic income. It's kind of dodging the question because the question is people who are working and still cannot afford. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what, what we've done in the United States, what we've proposed is doubling the minimum wage, which is still not universal basic income, but it's moving in that direction. Um there's a couple of questions around this thing of printing money, which I find very interesting too. Um, Claire Espiner asks, is there any reason to pay tax anymore if the Fed can print money to pay off the government debt? And I think when we started, we talked about, you know, we were always told here we had no money. And yet when it comes to it, we do appear to have a magic money tree. And <laughs> while it may not be enough, a lot of money has come out of the treasury to furlough people through the pandemic. And so everything that was said before feels like a kind of lie. I mean, on a really simple level, where does the money come from? This, I, I'll try to keep this as, <laughs> as, as, as least technical as I can, but here's basically what it is. The reason that a printed fiat dollar or pound has worth, it's just a piece of paper. It's not backed by gold or silver, it's just paper. But the reason that it is more than paper and the reason that it is actually very valuable and people want it is because if you work in the United States, if you do business in the United States or in the UK, you owe taxes in dollars or pounds. You have to pay your taxes in that currency. And the, 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 the fact that you have to pay your taxes in that currency is what gives it value. If you didn't have to pay taxes, then it really would just be a piece of, of, of paper. The fact that you have to pay your taxes in dollars and if you don't pay your taxes, you go to jail. That is what makes that dollar bill valuable. And so that is, that, to me, it's, it's a lot, you, you can get a lot more technical about it than that, but that to me is the answer of why do we have to pay taxes if we can just print money? It's that, it's the ability, it's the demand of paying taxes is what actually makes those printed dollars have value. And there's more to it than this in terms of money that is printed, uh, but is not actually lent out in the economy. It's not actually, you know, it's not printing it and giving, giving it to people in the streets who can go buy it. It's keeping it in the banking system to provide liquidity to banks. That's a very different thing than the money printing that took place in Weimar Germany that led to hyperinflation. It's a very different process, but you're absolutely right, 100% right, that for years, people were told for various social programs, we can't afford it. And then whether it is a war or a pandemic, whatever it is, you instantly realize, no, you can, there's a lot of money in, in, in the, the 
developed world that controls their own currency um, that, that you can find for these. And I think that's why there is more appetite in the United States for multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages that would not have been taken seriously before is because we, we've just kind of realized that wherever the limit is on how much money you can spend, and I don't think anyone knows where that limit is, but wherever it is, it's, it's higher than we once thought it, than we once thought it would be. I, I, I wrote recently that if you read Barack Obama's memoirs, he writes that in 2009, he, he proposed that, he, that we do a trillion dollar stimulus package and his own chief of, chief of staff laughed him, out of the war, laughed him out of the room with a curse word. Just, it just seemed impossible to do a trillion dollars. And we've done over 5 trillion in the last year. And people say like, yeah, that's great. Let's do more. So things have changed a lot in terms of the ability to find money to do these social programs relative to what we used to think. I still find it very strange, this feeling that, I mean, it, in Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, he, he talks about the development of money from, you know, coins and seashells, you know, to, to the end of the day, it's about trust. That, I mean, if I give you a piece of paper that says 50 on it, it's going to be $50 or 50 pounds. And that we're still building on that notion that it is, you know, that, that there's something very unreal about money. And I mean, I, I once lived in the Middle East and there was a great story about the, the ruler of Sharjah one day, it's about 1977, and he rang up the central bank and he said, I want to see my money. I don't like these pieces of paper. And they sent taxis around every bank in Sharjah to collect all their gold bullion and they piled it into a room. And it was probably about a 50th of what the man was worth. And he came in, he swept in and he looked at it and he said, great. And he went home again and he was happy. And I was sort of, that was sort of said a lot about this, this nebulous stuff that is just a, a row of noughts and minuses or pluses on a piece of paper or on a computer screen. And it's, um, the fact that these vast sums get borrowed like this, I think makes, makes people feel very sort of small in comparison. It's a very odd sensation that 5 trillion, 10 trillion can be almost magicked out of the ether. Yeah, and you're 100% right. What's interesting to me about this is if you go back and read what people were saying during the Great Depression in the 1930s, it was the exact same, but with much smaller numbers. Today, we say a trillion here, a trillion there. In the 1930s, it was a billion here, a billion there, but they had the exact same sense of where does this money coming from? And I feel so small. Um, so that idea that, you know, where's this money coming from? It's just a piece of paper. That's been a story that's been around for a hundred years. Now in the United States and the UK, we have avoided the hyperinflation uh, currency collapse that other nations have not. And of course, if a country like uh, Germany or Italy or Zimbabwe or Venezuela can watch their currency disintegrate, so can we. There's nothing special necessarily about the United States or the UK or, or Europe uh, that would prevent us from going down that situation. I don't think we're going to go down that situation anytime soon, but you're right that what ultimately holds these up, these currencies in place, is trust. Not just trust in the currency, but trust in government and the legitimacy of, of, of government. Once that goes away, it gets, it gets pretty ugly pretty quickly. Mm. Yes, like you see in any country which has inflation running so that you have to spend half a million somethings to buy a loaf of bread. Right. What's important about hyperinflation too, this often goes uh, uh, missed, is that inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. That's where you get inflation. Historically, most inflation is caused by there being too few goods. Not necessarily too much money being printed, but you get inflation uh, after world wars when the factories have all been bombed to rubble. Yeah. You get it when your government confiscates major industries and run them in the ground, which is what happened in Zimbabwe and Venezuela. Mm -hmm. It tends to be more about the lack of supply, the lack of the ability to produce goods than it is about printing too much money. Okay, I'm afraid we've now, we've now hit our time and I've got lots of other really good questions. I hope we've managed to take enough of them. I mean, there's one last question, which I think would be really nice way to leave it. I mean, what would you say to a 15 year old now who's going to, in a sense, come into the world in a post pandemic? I mean, going to be enormously affected by the pandemic. I mean, I don't know what's happening with your education in the US, but I imagine it's as messed up as ours is here. And so you're sort of struggling to the light right now. What would your advice be about money and savings and how to, well, how to look after it? Let's, let's, let's focus this on investments. And I would say, look, as someone who is 15, I would say you have a financial asset 
that the best investors in the world can only dream about, which is that you as being 15 years old, have your whole life in front of you. You have, <laughs> you have time to invest. You have decades in front of you to compound, which is something that someone like Warren Buffett, who's 90 years old, can only dream about. So use the amount of time that you have in front of you. Use your ability to start early and let compounding work for you. Use that as the advantage that it is. And it's an advantage that so many people who are, uh, who are in fortunate situations and finance professional investors, hedge fund managers could only dream about. So what would you put your money into though? Are you saying you put it into the post office or whatever your equivalent is or into your piggy bank or under your bed? Look, I think if you are, if you want to be a long-term investor, this is after you've saved enough money, you have enough cash to, to help yourself in, in, in any sort of see and pay off debts to the extent that you can. If you're a long-term investor getting started out, I think a good advice for most people is investing in a low-cost index fund, something like from Vanguard or whatnot, where you're not necessarily picking individual stocks or sectors. You're just making a bet on humanity. You're betting on the global economy and you're betting on people's ability to solve problems and create productivity uh, and, and, and grow the economy, grow the world over the long run. I think that's a good bet, a good starting place, not just a starting place, but a good way to, for lots of people to invest over the long run. I really like the idea of betting on humanity. Morgan Housel, thank you very much. Psychology of money is a treat. And um, I wish we could give Morgan a round of applause, but we can't because he's in Seattle and we're in London. And I don't know where all of you are, but thank you all very, very much indeed for joining us. And please join us again later in the week, if you can. We've got Marina Mazzucato joining us on Wednesday. We're talking to Rana Fahara of the FT. And in the meantime, Thank you all very much. Thank you, Morgan. Um, it's fantastic of you to give up your time. And I really enjoyed talking to you. And I know everyone's enjoyed listening to you. So thank you and good night. This has been fun. Thank you very much. Good night.